Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and in this episode, my very special guest is Ted Scott. Ted, as you probably are well aware, is the caddy for Bubba Watson, a two-time Masters champion. And in the podcast you're about to hear, he and I discuss why it all comes back to foosball. Yes, foosball. We also talk at length about how he got started in the game of golf, how he got started as a caddy, working for Paul Azinger, and then how he eventually got on the bag for Bubba Watson. And Ted gives us some insight onto not just Bubba Watson's approach to the PGA Tour, but he gives some really interesting stories about Bubba's win at the 2010 Travelers and why that was so special. The 2012 Masters, obviously that one was special, as well as the 2014 Masters, Ryder Cups, and what Ted is thinking we're probably going to see at a November Masters. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. And now I'd like to welcome to the Four Press Podcast my good buddy and the caddy for Bubba Watson, Ted Scott. Ted, how you doing, pal? I'm great, David. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to chat with you as well. And before we get into some of the things that you've been up to and the return to golf and, and looking forward to a, a Masters in November, which is almost like a Christmas coming about a month early, I got to ask you a little bit about things going on at home. It's been a very rough storm season for the folks down there where you live in, in Louisiana and, and across the Gulf Coast. Um, what's the situation like at home and how, are, how is everybody? Yeah, you know, we're, we're blessed to be alive and we, you know, fortunately didn't take too bad of damage where I live. Um, you know, if you go an hour west of where I am, it's complete destruction and devastation. You know, lots of my friends, a few family members, you know, um, you know that have had to totally pretty much scrap their homes, um, their businesses, you know, so, uh, it, it's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, after the U S open, um, I had three weeks off and in those three weeks I had two hurricane cleanups. Uh, so, so that was kind of crazy. And that's not even the one that was an hour West of me. I, I flew to my mom's in Alabama, um, you know, for, for that hurricane. And then, uh, you know, right before I came here to, uh, the Zozo championship and the, and the CJ cup, um, you know, one came right pretty much, you know, within an hour of my house again. So, um, been kind of nuts, but you know, we're used to it. They come in waves, um, you know, every probably five to 10 years, you know, it seems like two of them show up in Louisiana and then we, we pick up the scraps and get after it again. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a good thing in certain ways in that, uh, people put their political differences aside and all the garbage that's going on in the world and, you know, truly help one another. And it, and it it's kind of reminds me a little bit of, of 9-11, how the, the country is united, you know, and yeah. 
in tragedy and uh and these things you know really do unite people it doesn't matter your economic status or your race or any of that political beliefs you know people just want to help each other out and and get back to some sort of normalcy so it's it's a blessing in disguise yeah i would agree in some ways as a person who was in new york during 9 11 uh, i when you were just describing that situation it immediately flashed into my mind it's a real pity that sometimes it takes something terrible to to sort of bring everybody together you'd like to think that we could be a little bit better than that more often um but i 100 percent agree a lot of times when something really tragic or life-threatening all of a sudden, it's like your, your brain and, and collectively our brains snap back into what our priorities really should be, which is looking out for each other, helping everybody when we can, um, and just doing, as, as I sort of tell my kids, like just try and do the next right thing. You know, yeah, whatever so that well happens good. to, whatever happens to be, just try and do the next right thing, Absolutely. string a few of those things along, and uh, lo and behold, some, some real good stuff can happen for you. So, um, People obviously know you at this point as being Bubba Watson's caddy. You get a lot of FaceTime out there on TV. You've been in some really big situations. But um, what was it What was it that got you into this? I know that you were a player. I've done a little bit of research, and you and I have chatted over the years. Um, talk to people who may not be aware about your playing career and, and how you sort of got started in the game. Yeah, so um, the way I got started was, um, you know, we would spend the – Typical holidays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, um, with my with my grandparents uh, in Alexandria, Louisiana, and um, my parents. My parents were split up when I was a kid, so we would go visit my dad and go to there, and and you know they would take me to play golf usually like once every, you know, during one of those vacations we go out and play golf. So at seven years old it was the first time I touched a club, and I enjoyed it. And then um, I started spending the summertime with my dad, and I would play golf all summer um, long, and then I would go back to my mom's house. And we didn't have a golf course, you know, really close by. So I didn't play in the winters. And then we moved back to Lafayette, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, right before high school, and I started playing year round, went my first semester of college to McNeese State, um, you know, as a walk on. They redshirted me. I really wasn't that good. And I didn't think they were that good. So I decided to come <laughs> back to uh, the Rage and Cajuns in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I, I spoke to the coach there. And I said, hey, is there any chance I could walk on? you know, right here in my home city. And he said, yeah, you know, it had to be your sophomore year. So I, uh, I was like, great. And then in that time period off of one semester, I actually picked up a game called foosball and I quit playing golf for three and a half years. I didn't, I didn't walk on, I didn't touch a club. I just comp competed in foosball. And then after college, uh, started playing golf again, you know, some amateur tournaments, having some fun. A lot of my friends asked me to help them with their game. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, you know, in life. And, um, and so I, I started teaching, and while I was teaching, I was playing pretty well at the time. And a, and a man um, that I'd played a few rounds with, you know, said, you should try to play. And I said, well, it's pretty expensive to play the mini tours. And he said, well, I have money. I said, well, you're my new, my, my new partner. So, uh, yep. so he gave me some money. I played six events in 1999, um, you know, quickly realized that I need to sharpen my toolbox a lot. You know, uh, mm -hmm. you know I was good at my home course, but, you know, you, you got to take your game to every course. So in March of 2000, um, you know, I was waiting tables at night and practicing during the day, preparing for that year on the mini tours and the web.com tournament comes through my hometown every year. And, you know, my philosophy, someone taught me when I was young that if you want to get better at something, you get around people who are better than you. So I decided mm -hmm. to pursue that and try to go caddy for the week to see what these guys were really good at and see if I noticed something that, that I needed to work on that stood out. 
And, uh, you know, that week I happened to pick up a guy named Grant Waite and he, you know, he sure. asked me to do it again the following week. And before you know it, you know, a few months later, I'm standing there going toe to toe with Tiger Woods in 2000 at the Canadian Open, where many people say he hit his best shot ever. And, you know, we had finished second two weeks in a row. And I was like, man, this isn't a bad way to make a living, you know. So uh, I never went back to play. And I, I still love to try to get in an event as soon as possible and anytime I can because, I, you know, I want to be nervous. I want to be able to relate to what my pros going through. But, uh, you know, I didn't really have much of a playing career. You know, didn't play much college. Um, didn't ever play a college tournament. And really, you know, never gave it a full-time run on the mini tours. But, uh, but I still... I'm trying to improve and figure it out so I can help others, you know, who, who are pursuing that stuff. So there's a lot of meat on that bone right there. And I, I can't bear the lead on that foosball, if I'm not mistaken. So we're talking like on the table with a little mini soccer players on the sticks with the ball. That's correct. <laughs> there's, there's, and I'm not belittling it in the least. I had no idea there was even like, are there tournaments for this? This is something that's beyond just like in people's dens, obviously. Like what, what was that like? Yeah, so basically my neighbor in high school owned a pool hall and um I was I was I had enough credits to graduate where I could I didn't need to go to my final hour in in high school. So I would go every day in there and shoot pool and the third best player in the state of Louisiana was teaching me how to play nine ball. Uh you know, during my last hour of school I would just shoot pool every day and then but I wasn't old enough to be in there after six PM back from college i was old enough to be in there after 6 p.m and uh, i was in there playing pool every night and every monday and thursday night there would be you know 30 or 40 people crowded around a set of foosball tables just screaming and hollering and the curiosity that killed the cat you know drew drew me over there (laughs) and uh you know i was like what is this game and i could not believe the skill that these guys had and so i just tapped the guy on the shoulder and said excuse me can you teach me how to do this and he said no but i know a guy that can so I met the tournament you know, host, and he said, look, I'll teach you. You just have to play in my tournament. I said, well, how much does that cost? He said, five bucks. I said, I'm in. So from day one, <laughs> he was a Texas state champion. Uh, he taught me how to play. And, um, you know, in the course of two and a half years um, and, and picking up a really good player, a local player, under his tutelage, we won uh, three state doubles titles and the world amateur double title in 1994. And I won, uh, I won one single state championship. So, it was, you know, it's pretty incredible. It's, it's hard to believe, yes, there is an underground world. But I recommend uh, looking at the – there's a documentary that played on ESPN during the pandemic. It's called Foosballers. And um, everybody that's seen oh, it, I'm all in. it's fascinating. So I, so I would recommend watching that. You'll get, a, you'll get a clue on what I'm talking about. It's, it's really incredible. I am all in. And, and <laughs> I, I mean, now it is former world champion. Ted Scott. You can just leave off like, you know, foosball or track and field or whatever. Former world champion, Ted Scott. So you never really went through a period, it sounds like, where you needed to make a decision because of such early success with Grant, whether like caddying could be something that could end up being what pays the bills and, and helps you maybe put away a little something for the future. Because it sounds like you and Grant get together and have, relatively speaking, some pretty immediate success, right? Yeah, you know, Grant um, was such a great ball striker and great swinger of the club, and I, I had an incredible short game back then. I lived and breathed. That was my meat and potatoes, you know, just trying to trying to find my golf ball, and then once I find it, I could get it in the hole pretty quick. Um, hopefully I could find it. So, you know, for me, it was the knowledge that he he was giving me on how to swing, you know, how to how to approach, um, you know, the getting better at the swing part, and then his knowledge of obviously – you know, uh, course management and things like that, you know, so it was like, man, I want to do this for a little while and just, 
and just soak it up as long as he's willing to have me, you know, you know, and I think I was helping him with his putting and stuff. So, uh, so it was kind of a, you know, he was getting something, I was getting something. And then, you know, I started to realize how good these guys really are and how far away I was, you know, you, you know, you can go shoot in the sixties consistently on your home course, but you know, I'm looking at these courses going, there's no way I could do that. You know, this, I'm so far from being this yeah. good. And so, you know, it, it just kind of, it was a, it was a, an opportunity for me to recognize that I'm really not that good, even though I'm good locally, I'm not that good, you know, on a national level. And either I've got to improve a ton or I need to just do something else. And, uh, you know, when I, when I got engaged and ended up getting married and had our first kid and, you know, those are things you just go, yeah, I'll just stick to doing this. It's fun. It's exciting. You know, you still feel some pressure. Um, you still feel part of the team and, you know, I get to do something that I love and, and very thankful for. How did you hook up with Paul Azinger? Cause if I'm not mistaken, that was your next bag, right? Yeah. Believe it or not, uh, in, 2002 um one of the tailor-made reps came up to me and said hey you need to go play paul paul azinger in foosball he he said he can beat anybody so i went up to him and said hey i heard you want to i misunderstood i said i heard you want to play me in foosball he's like no i, I don't want to play you i said well, okay I, I didn't even know him he's, he's like there's this guy that i can't beat and, and uh, i'm just i just want to beat that guy and so i was like well i can help you with that so we went and played one night um the, the week that craig perks won the players championship and he couldn't believe the skill that, you know, that you could possibly have on a foosball table. And he fell in love with it. He invited me to his house for a week. I went and taught him foosball. He worked with me on my game. Um, you know, and then next thing you know, I had split with Grant to actually go back to playing. Because of Paul, I, I played, I think I played two rounds with him. And I, I lit it up, the, you know, went that week I was there. And he's like, you need to be playing golf for a living. So I quit, I quit caddying and went and started to go back to the mini tours. And, uh, and he asked me to caddy for one week, um, you know, in Flint, Michigan, because every night they have incredible foosball, uh, you know, <laughs> games, just matches. And so he's like, you got to come caddy this week. We're going to, we're going to have matches every night. And, uh, he'd only made two cuts all year. He was struggling with his putting. I gave him a putting tip and he finished seventh and he was like, you want to caddy again at the PGA? And before you know it, I was back caddying again, you know, um, cause I, I wasn't playing that well in the few tournaments I, I went at again, you know, so, um. Just kind of random, you know how how it all worked out. It's the way life works. Sometimes it's just you know some things sort of fall into place, and it's like you know it's it's just fate, and it just happens to work out. So how do you then go from Paul Azinger to Bubba Watson? Where was the connection, and how'd that happen? Yeah, so um, I I would say I'm a pretty good employee, you know, and I'm loyal. I uh, I you know I show up I show up every day. I don't call in sick. I think I do a decent job, and. Uh, the only job I've ever been fired from is Paul, from Paul Easinger. So, <laughs> mm. ouch. Um, and what's so funny about it is, I mean, he was he's incredible to work for. I mean, like you know, anybody that's ever worked for Paul would would say he's such a great boss. I mean, very generous with his money. You know, very uh, good attitude, a fighter, never blames you. Um, he was just pretty much, you know, his back was hurting. He wasn't playing good, and he was miserable. He's like, you know, I, I don't have it anymore. And he said, I'm firing you. And you know, I was like, oh, okay. And I, I was getting ready two months away from having our first child, um, you know, we, my wife and I. And so uh, so I was like, okay. So I, I didn't really want a caddy after that. I was going to go into business with my with my brother-in-law because there was really nobody I wanted to work for. I, you know, I want to have fun. And uh, there was some of the players that were maybe available at the time. I was like, yeah, I don't really think I would enjoy working for that person right? Um, as much as I did with Paul. I mean, he was so fun and very competitive, you know, even though he didn't have his A game. So anyway, um, you know, uh, basically just, I just called a couple of buddies and said, look, if you hear of somebody, you know, let me know. 
if not, you know, I got, I got some other things I'm going to do. And right. got a call from Ben Crane. I knew him from the PGA Tour Bible study, and Bubba knew him from the PGA Tour Bible study. And we, Bubba and I had never met. And he said, uh, hey, you know, I, I got a guy that, um, that I think would be good for you, Bubba. And so Ben called me and said, would you want to work for Bubba Watson? I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about the guy other than I hear he hits it far and curves it, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, so we set up a two-week trial run, you know, blind date. And um, we finished like 11th and 12th the first two weeks. And I got the job, and here we are in our 15th season. So it's pretty crazy how that worked out sitting there whining at each other like an old married couple. It's just perfect. You know, it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's great. It's great stuff. So I think uh, obviously Bubba Watson's big year. Um, you're both, I should say you guys are a team big year, 2010. He gets his first win. Uh, happens to be my home event up here at the travelers championship, TPC river Highlands. I remember it vividly. Um, I'm sure you do too. What, what do you remember most about that week and him finally breaking through with the win? Yeah, so, you know, that was one of the toughest years that I worked with Bubba. Um, you know, that year in 2013 were, were very difficult. And, you know, mainly because he was putting himself under a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, you know, his dad was dying of cancer, and yeah. he wanted to win on the PGA Tour before his dad passed away to honor his dad, who, you know, he got him into golf and did all his mm -hmm. golf with. So uh, so he was just high-strung. You know, he was young and mature. And, um, you know, two weeks before we had done the, uh, the U S open qualifier a few weeks before. Um, and you know, pretty much I just told him at the end of that qualifier that I was done caddy and I didn't want to work for him anymore because, you know, he was having such a poor attitude on the course. And I said, the only way I would continue to work is if he, if he changed that and he looked me right in the eyes, I thought he would say, Hey, you're fired, you know, fine, go f get out of here, punk. And he said, yeah. you're absolutely, he said, yeah. you're absolutely right. And I'm sorry. And I said, perfect. I mean, that's all I can ever ask of anyone. Is to, sure. is to to do like you you told your kids, you know, just make a better decision coming up, you know, and so that's all I'm looking for is is hope, and uh, and he was great, and so I said, okay, perfect. So, you know, we went to the Travelers, and it was the first time that he decided he was going to have a good attitude, no matter what came down the pipe. And interestingly <laughs> enough, um, we were on the 27th hole, our ninth hole of the tournament, and he started to flip out again. And I stopped him and I said, listen, the clubhouse is right there. I will walk in. You know, you said two weeks ago that you were going to commit to this. Uh, uh, let me know. What, yeah. What's the deal? And he said, yep, you're right. My bad. And he was an angel, you know, and he ended up winning his first tournament. And, you know, the tears and the joy of, of that sure. really came from, you know, all the passion that he had for his dad and the love he had for his dad and wanting to do it for his dad. You know, that, that emotion came out. So, you know, incredible week, incredible experience. You know, you, you know, I'm, getting teary-eyed right now just thinking about it you know what that meant to him and and how important that was when you explain the story that way i mean there's so many different layers i mean a lot of people when they look at a pga tour event and they're watching on tv as unfortunately most of us now are there's nobody who's going to be at pga tour events right right now i i guess they're going to be whatever but um you see what the television and and what the story that cbs or espn or, or whatever golf channel is, is showing you but there's always more to the story that, that you don't see. And, and they did a good, I remember it vividly, a great job of explaining why that was so important for Bubba. Um, they, they talked about, you know, his father and, and obviously like, you know, he, he lost it emotionally, but to, to hear that, you know, on the 27th hole of a tournament that he would go on to win, that the wheels almost came off and that there were these moments where it wasn't perfect and it's never perfect out there, but, but it's, it's fascinating yeah. to hear you, talk about that later that same season um 
you guys are in a playoff at the PGA Championship. And I, I apologize. If it, so I went back and I watched that up on YouTube. YouTube's great. You can just go back and just check out all this stuff. And something. W- were you on the bag there? Because it didn't look like you. you no. I don't know um, if maybe. No, it wasn't me. It was Mark Cairns, you know, one of my best That's friends. That's what I thought. I on the tour. And, uh, and Mark's, um, you know, Mark's pro was struggling that year. And, and I, you know, I told Bubba, I said, look, I, you know, I want to be there for the birth of my of my uh, son, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, so if it, if it works out and so actually two weeks in a row, um, you know, I didn't work and that was, that was the second of those two weeks. I re- I, so I'm sitting there watching YouTube and I'm like, this is not Ted unless like the camera angles are really whacked out and he just lost about seven or eight inches in height. You know, it's just, it's just not him. Um, <laughs> Bubba obviously has a great week, loses to Martin Keimer in, in that playoff. And, did you were you watching at the time? Because what what eventually you know for people who who don't recall it, Bubba played great. Obviously, Martin was was out of his head, made tons of putts, and, and was wonderful. You know, deserving champion. The the key moment comes down to in the playoff, they're tied playing in an, in an aggregate playoff. Bubba hits his drive into the right rough, and then a shot comes up short, and he goes into the water on the 18th green, and that really opened the door for Martin to win the tournament. And I'm sitting here. You know, reliving this, having forgotten that that moment. If you're watching at home and you watch this, what goes through your head in terms of like, oh my gosh, that's the wrong club or the wrong play, or obviously disappointment for for the team? W- were you watching at the time, and what was your reaction to that? Yeah, you know, I I actually um, I, I wasn't I was busy on Sunday, and then I heard that they were very close to the lead with like three holes to play, and. You know, I'm ashamed to say I was driving 95 miles an hour to get, to get home to watch it. Um, you know, obviously, a very big fan of Mark Cairns. I mean, like I said, one of my best friends out here. And he was not having a good year financially, and he has a family. And, you know, yep. my, my thing was, man, I, I want him to win so he can get some money and provide for his family. I was super pumped about that. You know, that was my my number yeah. one thing. You know, it was like, man, how cool would that be, you know? And so, uh, so yeah, I showed up. I saw the the last few holes as well as the playoff. And, uh, you know, I mean, Mark Cairns is a great caddy and Bob is a great player. And so, you know, I wasn't second guessing any decision that they made. I mean, you know, in, after talking to him afterwards, they both thought that they were going to catch a flyer. And that's, you know, that's the it risk happens. that you take, um, you know, when you're trying to win something. And, and a lot of people who've never been in that situation don't understand, you know, they think people choke or whatever, but the problem with being great at anything is that you have to be willing to mess up in order to gain something. And most mm. people who have never been great at anything are never willing to take that risk to actually get something from it. You know, it's like starting a business, right? It's a tremendous risk uh, to, to take on that, that pressure and that stress, but the upside is where it comes from. Or you can say, well, I'm just going to stay in my comfort, my, my comfort zone and not do that. And so, you know, being a great champion, you, you have to be willing to hit the shot that's called for. And, and sometimes it's a guess, you know, the ball, one blade of grass makes the ball go farther or not farther. And, and that's kind of hard to tell. So, you know, just an unfortunate thing. I mean, Bubba hit it right at the pin. It just didn't, didn't fly like they thought. It was, and, you know, it was, it was online the whole way and yeah. ended up being, you know, you watch it on the replay and it's 20 yards short of the putting surface. And you're like, Oh my gosh. And the announcers are like, you know, he missed clubbed or this or that. And, and as you're saying, he's the one hitting the shot. He's the one that's standing over it, and he and his caddy are making that decision. And fear can do some really funny things to people, you know, in athletic competition and in life in general. In athletic competitions, it can change the way your body's working. You know, you get a shot of adrenaline, and all of a sudden, every club in the bag is ten yards longer. Yeah, or it sure. can, 
in some cases be restrictive and all of a sudden you lose flow and you're 10 yards shorter than you, than you would be because you seize up. I mean, these cliches that people use sometimes to describe things are there because there's a level of accuracy to it, you know, that, that you get guys who just get amped out and some people who get tight. And um, it, was an, it was a really great performance by him in a major championship that didn't go well. 2012, different story. Aside from the unbelievable shot that he hits in the playoff on 10 at the Masters to, to win his first green jacket, what do you recall most or what comes into your mind most when you think back to the 2012 Masters? Yeah, so, you know, a few months before, um, you know, Bubba kind of started planting the seed in his own head, you know, and watering it. You know, he, he would he would say to me periodically, man, I, th- I think I can win Augusta, you know. And um, and that's that's a good thing when someone starts believing, you know, that something's possible, yeah. you know. And so that was that was kind of the, the beginning of it was just starting to say, you know, how much he loved it, how much he 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 thought the course fit him. He, he just loves all everything about it and that he thinks he can win it. So when you have that, you know, that belief inside of you um, and then you love the way it you know sets up for your game and all the shots and the creativity that, you know, he's known for. You know, it kind of you kind of felt like it was going to be a good week, and also, um, it's easier to take the bu- the bumps, the licks, whenever you think there's going to be a good a result at the end. You know, it's kind of like working out, right? You know, if you if you're going to the beach in six months, you know, you're willing to push things really hard, you know, away from you, even though it's hurt, you get lactic acid built up. You're willing to do that stuff because you you recognize that you might get something from it. You know, so. Um, just, there's just a calmness and a, and a relaxation, no matter what happened. I never had to say, come on, man. You know, it was just, he was in it. So from, from the, from the get go, you know, so that's kind of what I remember the most about that week was just the presence, you know, of his mind and how focused he was and how nothing bothered him, you know, nothing. The Sneak is a true crime podcast from For the Win in USA Today, and this season is on a surfing champion whose life took a violent, tragic turn. Within 30 seconds, they're both dead. The Sneak Murders at Whiskey Creek is out July 29th, wherever you get podcasts. So players talk, and you know, obviously the media talks to players about how special that tournament is. It's the one major championship, obviously, every year where we go back to the same place. This year we're doing it later in the year than we than we typically do, but it's it's great that we get to have it here in a few weeks. From a caddy perspective, talk to me about how the Masters is different from not just week-to-week PGA Tour events, but the other events. You guys have a great location just to the side of the, the range where I know that there's a, a wonderful pavilion for you guys to stay there, but as the week sort of progresses and, and takes takes shape, how is it different at Augusta National than it is at other venues? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's almost like, uh, in a sense, you know, you think of iconic golf courses where great champions have played and you, you have very memorable shots, you know, Pebble, uh, St. Andrews, things like that, where, you, you know, you just kind of go, man, you remember when, you know, Jack Nicklaus did this or Tom Watson or whatever, um, you know, so when you go to Augusta, you, you kind of remember all the things that have happened, you know, oh, this is where Chip Beck chick, chipped in and this is where, you know, this, ha-, you know, so it, it's, it's to begin with, it's just like the prestige and the history of the place. Whereas when you go to a, you know, a major championship where they've played it twice and you don't really remember it, it's just kind of a, it feels like a golf tournament, you know, that's a little more yeah. pressure and a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. 
But when you go to Augusta, you know, it's, it's like right away you're at Wimbledon, you know, where the great champions have played, you know, in tennis and, and the history of, you know, all the greats that have been there and all the shots that have happened. And so, um, you know, and then, and then the, the, uh, the atmosphere, the back nine on Sunday atmosphere is something that you can't even describe, you know, especially when you're playing the front nine and you can hear it, you know, <laughs> uh, early on, you know, just how enthusiastic the patrons are and, uh, and, you know, the way they set the course up for the drama, you know, it's, it's perfect setting to, to play incredible or play terrible. You know, you can, you can quickly lose it and you can shoot four under, which is exciting. You know, it's not just a mm-hmm. par fest, um, you know, hang on, okay, let's just try to keep making pars and hopefully keep our lead. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's usually a, a run on Sunday in the back nine and, and that makes it very exciting. So, um, you know, it's just, I think the history and the prestige of the tournament. And then, you know, there's not one thing that they do that's not first class, you know, at Augusta. I mean, you go there, you know, my dad, first time we ever went, you know, he was like, there's not a blade of grass out of place, you know? And so, you know, you, you know, the golf course is going to be immaculate. You know, the food's going to be great. The staff, you know, everything's going to be clean. Um, you know, the patrons are very well behaved there, which is fun. You know, you, you don't feel like that they're trying to interrupt you or be a part of the story, you know, screaming in your backswing or whatever, you know. So it's just it's just a very prestigious golf tournament with a great history. And, you know, it's beautiful. So it's, it's, it's hard to describe, you know, any other place like it. Sounds like a good gig. Do you have the flag from 18 from that year? Yes, sir. I do. That's, um, do you also have your own, uh, this is always something that, that I'm, I'm fascinated by. Let me, let me by. correct myself on that. I actually have the flag from hole 10 on that year and, and, uh, Andrew Fisher, Bubba's trainer at the time has the flag from hole 18. We, we asked, oh, uh, that's, that's of course, because of the playoff. Yeah, we asked Augusta if he could, if he could have that and they said yes. So, um, so he got one and I got, I got the one from hole 10. Do you have like sort of a. Uh, most of the time players are going to have yardage books and, and oftentimes their, their caddy will also have a book. Do you keep all of your old books and sort of go back and reference them? Or is there a, like sort of like a, a master book that you update over the years? What, where do those go? Yeah, no, I have a, I have a several boxes at my house from 20 years of caddy and then, you know, pretty much you never throw away a yardage book, you know, in case you go back you, yeah. you just never know. I mean, here we are at Sherwood this week and, you know, I think we were here last in 14. So you're digging through there trying to find it going, Hey, what did we hit on this hole? And what about that? You know, Oh man, I, you know, I remember this, this happened. And so I would imagine it must've felt kind of cool. One of the traditions, if I don't have it mistaken, is that the following year, the master's champion, don't they get the number one on the caddy bib? Yeah, they do. That's, that's a good tradition. And yes, they, that is correct. Good memory. That's got to feel really special. You sort of slide in there and it's obviously like, you know, if you win a, a British open, you get the claret jug for the year and then you sort of hand it back as part of the tradition the following year. Right. Um, <laughs> other things sort of go along like that. It's, there's gotta be a big sense of pride. Well, I mean, like all of a sudden, like that year you're, you're the number one and there's this sort of acknowledgement or sort of like a little nod that like, yep, you're, you're the guy, you're the defender. And that has to be kind of special. Yeah, you know, it, they they do a lot of little neat things for you, um, you know, that probably people don't know about. I'm I'm not going to reveal any of that stuff, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's great. You know, obviously winning Augusta. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to win any other major, but I'd take four more of those and and be very pumped about it. So two years after that, sandwiching around an Adam Scott victory that was also in a playoff in that year, 2013, over Angel Cabrera. Um, you and Bubba win your second Masters, and uh, 
walk me through the moments that going from 12 green on Sunday up to 13 tee box and then what you saw up there because that to me was one of the defining shots of the last 10 years. That that shot at 13 on Sunday was unbelievable. Yeah, so to go back to your point of adrenaline, you know, these guys do things when they're under adrenaline that's pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, Jordan had struggled on hole 12, even though we were battling him. Um, you know, he, he had started to struggle a little bit, which gives, you know, a lot of times a, 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 it's like a cat fight, right? One person starts posturing when the other one starts shrinking. And so, uh, yeah. and so that, I think that gave Bubba some, some, you know, chin up, chest out kind of, you know, attitude to begin with, uh, you know, when Jordan hit it in the water there. And then, um, and then we, uh, you know, we had a nice storm that came through that area that year mm-hmm. and thinned out a lot of the trees. The treetops were very, uh, you know, thin because of that, that ice storm, apparently. Um, so it, it was just a little bit different than it typically is. And so when he hit the tee shot, you know, he pushed it, but he hit it probably as hard as any tee shot I've ever seen him hit in 20, you know, in 15 years of watching him hit golf balls. And so, uh, you know, when he hit it, I knew it was going to carry really far and I thought it probably would catch a limb or two in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. but, but not enough to knock it where we wouldn't find it or even to where it wouldn't be over the, the Creek, you know? Um, and then, you know, it's probably the only time I've ever seen a delayed reaction roar on a tee shot, <laughs> like almost like yeah. a hole in one, you know, uh, when that ball landed, you know, next thing you know, you hear, you hear these cheers and you're like, is that for our tee shot? So yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. It was unbelievable. And I remember, watching that shot thinking oh my gosh he's about to hand him shots back because as everybody sort of we, you know it's funny we because we go back every year and that golf course has been enshrined in video games everybody knows intimately the augusta national and if you go left off 13 it's long big high trees and as you accurately you know sort of described that that had been thinned out because of an ice storm that happened in the season and i thought he's gonna go up near Jake the Snake, as my caddy, I, I had a chance to play Augusta National um, as after winning the the media lottery in two thousand and nine, and my caddy told me he's like, if you lose a ball up there, we're not looking for it because that's where all the snakes are. And I was like, <laughs> well, sounds good to he, me. He's right; they are up there. Yeah, I, I I'm like, I got plenty of pills. Like we're 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 going straight or we're going right, babe. We're we're not going up onto that hillside. <laughs> and and my thought when that shot went off was he's going to give it back and all of a sudden things are going to get really goofy. And it was a shot that obviously goes in there and, and just put him in the catbird seat. There have been a couple shots like that. Uh, Bryson shot recently at Wingfoot on 16 um, when he just absolutely let it rip and, and, and hit one was, was an iconic shot. Was that a line that you guys even discussed cutting the corner like that? in practice rounds or in previous rounds or was it literally as you describe it like a block on a really hard tee shot that just happened to to go that way was he thinking about a line like that at any point before well you know he was definitely aiming probably i would say at the most 15 yards right of that and just trying to smash it and typically when bubba you know hammers it uh it doesn't fade like when he hits his high knuckle bomb you know it's not a it's not a uh a push it's typically if anything it'll just go really dead straight and so okay. you know he, he took a little more aggressive line you know and, and that's that's the genius of who Bubba is you know I mean he's got so many shots 
So no, we didn't discuss it. You know, I mean, he just gets up on the tee and, you know, that's a hole where he can hit a low chip slice and run it down the fairway. He can hit it hard, a high, hard, high cut, a high bomb. You know, I've kind of seen it all. Um, and I've seen him hit it 15 yards right of that on the line many times, you know, so, uh, you know, like when the conditions are right, you know, whether it's in a practice round or what, but, you know, with that kind of adrenaline, you know, you're capable mm-hmm. of maybe an extra 20 yards. The trees were a little thin, you know, and he's a very sharp guy. I'm sure he thought about all that stuff, but no, it's not something we, that we personally discussed. <laughs> so obviously having won two major championships at that point, Bubba's in the prime or one of the primes of his career. He, he certainly still has much more prime to go, but president's cups, Ryder cups, those kind of events start taking place. Um, the coverage is really interesting in that there's not that much golf that gets played for all of the, the pageantry and all the pressure and everything that's sort of put onto the players and the team captains, certainly when it comes to Ryder cups, especially, I think um, that there's not that much golf that gets played, but there's so much that goes on and that's involved in it. Can you describe for people who are sort of unaware what your roles are? Because in a team situation, when you are paired with either in four ball or in foursomes, it's, the, the whole team, the caddies are a big part of this stuff. So walk people through sort of the preparations leading up to a Ryder Cup or a President's Cup from a caddy perspective. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the few weeks where we get to be partners with someone other than your than your player, you know, caddy relationship. So, um, you know, I think it's it's kind of like a maybe like a team building exercise for a corporation, you know, uh, where you go on a hey, let's go to, you know, Orlando. We're going to go to Disney World for four days and we're going to do some team building exercises and try to, you know, build a, a brand that, that where everybody's, you know, on the same team and we're fighting together and trying to beat the others. And so, um, you know, so there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of bonding. There's a lot of encouraging that goes on that you just don't have in a typical individual tournament, you know. Um, so that's the, that's the real fun part of it is we get to be a part of something that you're normally not a part of. And, um, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out strategy, whether, Hey, are we going to play alternate shot? Are we going to be in the four ball? You know, what, what about this? Well, you want the odds or the evens, you know, what, how are you putting? You're putting well. Okay. Well, I'll hit the irons, you know, it, cause it's this course sets up where I'll hit, you know, three more mm-hmm. iron shots and you'll have three more birdie putts, you know? So just that, that's the kind of strategy that goes on. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, behind the scenes, it's, it's a lot of, uh, just bonding and really trying to get the energy in the right place where you feel like a team, you want to fight for one another, you want to fight for the captains, um, you know, and the, the PGA staff is, you know, unsung heroes. I mean, what they do for that event and during that event, they, they work so long hours and, and prepare it really, really well. So, you know, kudos to them for what they do and, and, you know, I've never had anything but an incredible experience, um, you know, with, with what they've done. So it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it really is. It's a lot for, for three days of golf. It's like, man, this is a, this is a big week, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about social media is how much it revealed that while the players and the teams are competing like the Dickens to try and beat each other and everybody really, really wants to win. Once the, the event is over, there's usually a party for the American team, a party for, in this case, you know, the European team for, for the for the Ryder Cup. Eventually, those two things merge, and everybody's, for the most part, very friendly, very cordial. Everybody's getting along, having a good time. I vividly remember after one Ryder Cup that the U.S. lost, Bubba Watson and Ian Poulter smiling and taking selfies together and posting them up, you know, on Twitter and Instagram, and, and, and everything sort of goes on, and it's great. 
During the event, what is the relationship between you and the the European tour caddies? And I ask that because for people who may not be aware, it's very common for caddies and twosomes and threesomes at PGA Tour events to assist other players. I mean, if if a play, if a player take, hits a bunker shot, walks out, taps his spikes, and then sort of walks up onto the green, his caddy's going to go in there and clean out the bunker. At the same time, the player may drop a, a mark down, pick up the, the ball, and somebody will offer to, to clean it off or to help out. You're, you're handing the flag back and forth to whoever's going to be the last one off. All this stuff to sort of keep the pace of play going, and if nothing else, just be polite. It's not you know, offering up how to read a putt, but it's it's just being sort of, you know, polite and cordial and stuff like that. Does that go on still in Ryder Cups? Or are you guys so focused on helping out, in your case, you know, the U.S. team and your your guys, does does that not really take place? I, th- I think it definitely takes place on both sides of it. I think you have players that, you know, are different and you have caddies that are different and then you have caddies and players that are the same, you know, and it, and it just depends on what motivates you, you know, um, you know for a fact that Webb Simpson and Paul Tesori, you know, two of the best guys you could ever meet, are never going to do any mind games. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's not who they are, right? Um, but obviously there's definitely players and caddies that will be trying to do, you know, things to get into someone else's head mentally and frustrate them and mm-hmm. try to take you off your game. You know, it's, it's a competition. And, you know, I think I think that should be welcomed as long as it's within the rules of golf, as long as you're not, yep. you know, talking to somebody's backswing or whatever it's like hey man it's a competition if i can intimidate you or frustrate you because i didn't want to wreck your guy's bunker or something you know it's not something that i would personally do but i'm saying you know i don't have a problem with somebody trying to do that stuff i mean that's that's what you're out there for and and it's you know kill or be killed kind of thing but uh yeah afterwards you know it's it's fun you know i mean that's what makes it so fun because it's it's so intense and so yeah. there's so many small stories to it. You know, it's like, I hate this guy, you know, and then you go have dinner with him afterwards, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> And that's the thing that I think a lot of people didn't really get is that over the years there has been, I don't know if animosity is, is really the right word, but the intensity certainly has ratcheted up over the years with Ryder Cup. And in my opinion, sometimes on both the European and the U.S. fan side, lines have been crossed. And, and I, it disappoints me to sort of see that, and I, I put, put it on both sides of that. I'm not saying one over the other, but yeah. um, the intensity has gotten really, really high at times to the point where sometimes I even question, like, you know, we, we need to ratchet this down. Competition, fiercely trying to win, of course, absolutely. Lines have been crossed. Um, but I, I remember just vividly seeing this stuff and what people don't, I don't think realizing it, like I sort of said before, it's been a positive thing uh, on the fact of social media is that it sort of revealed the players are all really good friends by and large before the event and after the event during they're trying to win. But a lot of times you end up seeing pictures and hearing stories about how everybody got along and there's like little needling here and there and, and, and guys are sort of getting into it a little bit, but, but it's all in the proper nature. It's as if the players get it, but the people outside the ropes, sometimes lose sight of it. One of the things, Ted, I, I keep, before I let you go, we've obviously got the Masters coming up here in November. Um, it's going to be a very different, I'm assuming, type of a Masters than what we've seen before. I think we can presume the weather is going to be colder. Um, it sounds like going off of two tees is, is a definite possibility because of daylight. What are you guys anticipating? How are you preparing for a November Masters? Well, Bubba prepares by showing up at every place. So, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> he's not a practicer. He's just, you know, he just, he just, you know, basically just gets there. He's like, all right, let's just play golf, you know. So he, he doesn't hit balls. He doesn't, 
you know, that's who, that's just who he is, and that's how he's successful um, in his his method. But um, but yeah, obviously, um, you know, being that the overseed will be newer, uh, I think it'll probably be softer. You know, um, you know, the roots mm-hmm. won't be as as thick and deep as they are. So I think the course will naturally be a little bit softer. So the ball it's going to play you know colder. It's going to play longer. Um, you know, for one, um, and and two, you know, without the patrons there. Uh, you know, that's going to be different without having those huge roars, you know, when you make a putt. I mean, you know, that's something we've been dealing with this year. Very, very difficult to get into the tournament sometimes when you're close, you know, when you don't have that adrenaline or whatever. That adrenaline makes these guys focus and even do, you know, way more incredible things. So definitely, um, you know, it's it's interesting, um, you know, the approach that, that we're going to be taken and it would be just like any other masters, except it's not going to feel the same. You know, the, I, I'm, I don't, can't put it past them, but I can't imagine they'd have azaleas blooming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, if any they, place is going to be able to make a dogwood, you know, sort of bloom in the middle of November, it would be the Augusta national. But, but exactly. I, I agree. I think I, um, I had a chance to talk with Peter Costas on the podcast last week and um, he wasn't the least bit surprised, for example, that Colin Morikawa wins, uh, obviously being a good player that, Bryson DeChambeau wins two guys who win their first major championships and break through relatively young players, certainly in Morikawa's case. Um, and there are no fans. The fact that we're going to be going to a Masters, there aren't going to be patrons. You had talked earlier about the back nine atmosphere. It's going to be a very different back nine atmosphere um, at Augusta National this year. Would you be surprised if some of the younger players or the less experienced at Augusta National players are going to potentially be contenders? Or do you think that just the way that that golf course set up and the experience that you get playing Augusta National over the years sort of trumps the fact that maybe the the roars and the adrenaline that would be a bad thing for some of the more inexperienced players isn't going to be there. I would be surprised at Augusta. And the reason why is because I've played St. Andrews and I've played, you know, some other great golf courses. And uh, when Bubba took me to Augusta the first time, and there was nobody out there except the pro uh, watching us tee off. He said, you're going to be nervous on the first tee. I said, no, I'm not. Why would I be nervous? You know, And I, I, my hand was shaking on the first tee when I teed up at Augusta. Yep. So, uh, you know what? I think um, it's just different. You know, the, the prestige, um, knowing that, you know, hey, lifetime exemption, the champion's dinner, man, that's a big deal. It's, so you know, It's I the right one to win, isn't it? If it you're going to win one, that's it, the right one to win. win one, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be quite the same, even though there's no patrons. Um, you know, I don't think it'll it'll quite be as as what Peter said for Augusta. I, I just think that, um, you know, it's just it, it just kind of puts you in a different frame of mind. And uh, and, you know, maybe in my opinion that have actually having patrons there would help somebody who's never won or, or, you know, that, but that's just my take. Listen, Ted, I know you've got to bounce and got to go best of luck um, with the end of the 2020 season. Uh, hopefully you guys have a, a little reprieve from all the storms that have been happening back home. And once again, thanks very much for coming on the four press. David, you're the man. I appreciate it. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.